And good evening, everyone. And good morning or good afternoon, depending upon where you are in this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when anything can happen. You know, we used to say that really with a straight face, but these days, I mean, if you look at the news, and it doesn't matter your political persuasion, any news, you'll see that all kinds of things which anchors are saying over and over and over again, we've never seen this before, this has never happened before, this is unprecedented. I mean, we're living in the other side of midnight 24-7. Tonight we're going to have a very interesting show with a guest that we had on back in January. I think it was mid-January. And he promised us some interesting updates. And boy, are we, um, are we in fact, uh, going to have some interesting surprises for you. Before we get to that, however, there is some news. Uh, as you know, um, last few days we launched following the Chinese and the United Arab Emirates, our Perseverance unmanned mission to Mars. Spacecraft is alive and well and healthy in its uh, carrier vehicle. It's on solar power. They're going to do a mid-course in the next uh, week or so, which will tweak its trajectory so that it actually is aimed at Mars. What's interesting is that when they launch these spacecraft, because of uh, planetary quarantine uh, ideas, they launch them literally biased so that the spacecraft and the last stage of the upper up uh, the launch vehicle, the upper stage, um, when they do the final burn, uh, that vehicle will not impact Mars. So since that's the stage that is discarded, it goes into an interplanetary orbit, and you do not want an unsterilized rocket hitting Mars yet, because there is the extraordinary possibility of life, and it's getting bigger every day. So they bias the trajectory so that it's literally aimed away from Mars. And then they have to perform what's called a TCM, a a, uh, trans-cruise maneuver. And they maneuver the spacecraft with little rockets on the the carrier vehicle back on course to intercept Mars. So they're going to do that in another week or so. Everything is fine. It's purring along. In the meantime... A previous spacecraft, which has been on the planet now for uh, something like a year, maybe even more. It's amazing how time flies when you're not looking at these things every day. The InSight mission, which was the first mission. Um, let me let me correct that. The second mission to carry a seismometer to Mars. The first mission uh, missions were the two Viking landers back in 1976. The problem there is that the um, seismometers were not coupled closely to the ground, and they discovered as they were, you know, taking data, that there was an awful lot of noise that crept into the signals. If you don't have a good coupling to the ground, instead of measuring Mars quakes, you're measuring wind noises and instrument noises and all kinds of things on the spacecraft. So with this one, they had a deployable seismometer, which is a gadget specifically designed to be able to detect uh, vibrations of the ground from quakes inside Mars. And they deployed it several feet from the lander and put a little dome cover over it to shield it from wind noises. And that reduced the background significantly. So for the last several, many, many, many months, I think it's a year plus They've been taking data every time the spacecraft is listening and recording and then sending to Earth. So they've been accumulating in the files on Earth this enormously long database of the quakes of Mars. And by summing the quakes together, it's basically an adding technique where when you add signal, you drive down the noise. They have found for the first time in C2 measurements from the echoes of ground motion in Mars, Mars quakes. They have defined the three basic levels beneath the feet of the InSight lander. So if you go to that first link in uh, my items in Radio with Pictures tonight, and the way everyone gets there for all you new listeners, we're getting a lot of new listeners, where I'm very appreciative of all that. 
for you new listeners, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says very prominently there at the top uh, for August 8th, um, America's Stonehenge, New Data, Part 2, with Dennis Stone. There's that gorgeous view of the sunrise in, uh, in New Hampshire on the solstice. And click on that. That will take you to the guest page, to Dennis's page tonight. Right under that uh, banner, you'll see something that says fast links to items, Dennis and Richard. Click on me. Click on Richard. And then that will take you directly to item number one. This is the Rice University. There's a very interesting story all about the seismometer. What's really intriguing is for the first time in modern history, we now have actual measurements of the interior structure of the planet Mars. The first boundary is the dividing line between the crust and the mantle. You know, the Earth has a crust and a mantle, and the mantle is very thin. The crust, uh, I'm sorry, the, 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 mantle, the mantle is thick. The crust is very thin. Well, on Mars, it turns out from summing a lot of observations, again, you average the noise and the signal pops out. The crust is about 22 miles thick. The bottom is about 22 miles beneath the lander. The second transition was within the mantle where the magnesium iron silicates undergo a geochemical change. And above that zone, the elements form a mineral called olivine. Beneath it, the heat and pressure compress this material into a new mineral with a name I don't really want to dare pronounce. It's called uh, wadselite, W-A-D-S-L-E-Y-I-T-E. It's a transition. That zone is found about 690 to 720 some miles beneath Insight. And then finally, we get down to the core, the third boundary, and the actual iron-rich core was found to be 945, give or take a few tens of miles, maybe all the way up to 100. A 50 mile differential beneath the lander. Um, this will, of course, become narrowed as they get more observations and they can eliminate more noise. And, you know, if you ping, 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 the echoes will kind of add. So they'll be able to get more accurate measurements. But this is really amazing because now for the first time, we have comparison of the interior structure of Mars, not from theoretical models, not from the computer ideas, not from, you know, garbage in, garbage out, but we have real data to plug into the models, and this is going to tell us a lot about, A, is Mars currently, quote, alive geologically? Are there, is, is the core really hot? Are there still volcanoes? Or is it dead? It's dead, Jim. And we're literally sitting on a quiet world where there are very, very few Mars quakes induced by internal activity. Time will tell. Item number two, right under item number one, SpaceX just launched 57 new Starlink satellites. Remember, Elon Musk has this vision, which some people are very, very um, unhappy with, of launching something like 43,000. Let me repeat that. 43,000 um, hatbox-sized satellites in low Earth orbit, a few hundred miles up. And they will, are, they're, they're basically put into this interesting grid of orbits so that they are within view of any place on the planet when the full network is in place. You will never have the sky without a Starlink satellite above the horizon meaning that any spot on Earth, up to and including the Antarctic, the Arctic, the wilds, the depths of Africa, South America, the top of the Andes, top of Mount Everest, you know, Death Valley, middle of Los Angeles, you will be able to get high quality, and this is important now, listen carefully, high quality 5G equivalent reception. The difference here is, because these are satellites, they are broadcasting on a frequency which is the same as your standard uh, dish satellite network, meaning the frequencies can get through the atmosphere 
to reach a receiver sitting on your roof or in your backyard or whatever. And so you do not have the extraordinarily messy EM effects of the current proposals for millions of towers carrying 5G millimeter frequencies. This is why I'm supporting Musk's idea, but as an astronomer, I'm very concerned with the problems of all these satellites literally blocking out from Earth all kinds of potentially crucial observations. And if you read the article, the problems for astronomy and what Musk is doing about it, the, this latest set of satellites actually comes equipped with sunshades or visors designed to make the satellites much dimmer so that you do not have uh, the same kind of interference with the sky that the um, unshielded satellites have. And we'll obviously see if that uh, technological fix for the latest 57 works. The earlier satellites, many of which were, were obviously all of which were launched without this sunshade, um, they're still in low Earth orbit and they will decay relatively quickly. So there will be a selection process where the uh, atmospheric drag, because they're only a few hundred miles up, will take those out of the equation and we'll be left with satellites where Musk and his group of engineers are going to keep tinkering to make them as dim as possible. And for long distance, long exposures by professional astronomers, they have provided orbital links to the satellites so that astronomers can literally plan their observations around when the spacecraft come over the horizon. And if you're taking a very long exposure, let's say the Hubble deep field, which was exposed for something like two weeks, not continuously, but on and off, you basically, if your ephemeris says there's a Starlink satellite or set coming over the horizon, you interrupt your image, you wait till the satellite passes, and then you reestablish your photography and you continue the exposure. The neat part about this is, of course, the sky is not changing on this time scale. You know, the same object you're photographing a billion light years away is going to be in exactly the same position tomorrow night, the next night, or an hour from now. So there are ways professionally that you can work around the the pattern of, of a spacecraft. One of the complications, of course, is as in any good, you know, capitalistic society, once people got wind of what Musk was wanting to do, there's a whole bunch of other players that want to put up their satellites to compete. And so the sky is going to be filled with satellites. And the question, of course, is, are we going to be deprived, if you're astronomers, of long-term photography of the sky from Earth because the plate will be crisscrossed by all kinds of tracks of spacecraft shining in reflected sunlight? Well, if you know anything about telescopes, most of the professional photography is a very, very, very narrow fields of view, much smaller than the full moon. So the odds are, even if the sky is filled with satellites, that's kind of a picturesque way of putting it, if you have an ephemeris and you know when the spacecraft are coming over, it takes them like a second or two to pass through your field of view, which means you can time your pictures. If you're, again, a professional astronomer doing imaging, doing spectroscopy, doing anything that requires deep, long exposures, you can time with a computer, because everything is done with computers these days. No astronomers are sitting at the telescope looking through the eyepiece, making observations. It's all by screens and computers and archives and international networks and even remote uh, robotic telescopes. So while this adds an additional layer of encumbrance, the upside, and I'm we're going to do a whole program and maybe more than one on this, the upside is that Musk's very brilliant strategy for eliminating the deleterious 5G on Earth is to make it so much more attractive in terms of the market from space that the market will automatically choose his satellite network and will eschew and make obsolete and economically un, un, you know, thinkable to build all these towers and to radiate us all with millimeter wave 5G which is the frequency which is not good for beagles or begonias, as Sagan would have said. Now, following on this, item number three is kind of amusing because it looks like uh, Bernie Sanders and Elon Musk have gotten into a Twitter spat all about 
socialism, about Bernie's socialism. Remember, Bernie, you know, um, Bernie Sanders is an avowed, you know, socialist. And before everybody runs screaming into the hills at that word, the United States for decades and decades and decades has been a socialist country. You just don't know it. You're beneficiaries of the fact that we're a socialist country. You just don't know it. Point is that Bernie very cleverly pointed out after Musk took him to task for his socialist agenda in in some kind of a post on Twitter. Bernie just gently pointed out that Musk has been the beneficiary of a socialist government, which has given him approximately $5 billion to build his spacecraft, to build his starship, to build his satellite, you know, Starlink network, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a situation kind of like pot calling kettle in a different color. Anyway, you can read all that for yourself, and it's kind of amusing, and ultimately it's going to wind up that uh, Musk is very weird. You know, um, Robert Morningstar, one of our colleagues, keeps calling uh, uh, Donald Trump, you know, Dennis the Menace. Frankly, I think that accolade goes to Elon Musk because he says many things in Twitter that I think he says just to get people's dander up and to see how they'll respond. Moving on. Item number four, Um, on Tuesday of this week, um, there was this horrendous nuclear tactical weapons level explosion in downtown Beirut. And you can go online and see all these extraordinary images because the reason everybody was taking pictures of this thing with cell phone video is because a fire started shortly before this extraordinary blast So everybody in high-rises and all around the city were focusing their cameras on this site down by the waterfront in the dockside area, Um, just just taking pictures, taking video. And so we have an incredible array of different perspectives, different angles, different lighting, different geometry of this detonation, which had, you know, apart from the horror of the 150 plus people now killed, and something like 5,000 injured and 300,000 made homeless because the blast literally destroyed apartments and smashed windows in, in, in an array all over the city and knocked people off their feet, you know, miles away. Um, what we have is this amazing array of imagery focused on the blast. And the most interesting weirdness of all is that our president, Donald Trump, was holding a news conference within a few hours of this uh, mysterious detonation. The Lebanese government had put out a press release saying that it was some old ammonium nitrate, something like, get this, 2,700 tons stored in a warehouse for years, six, seven years, that had come off a freighter that was supposed to take it to Mozambique that made an unscheduled stop in Beirut and never left. And the whole story is in that fourth item. What's really weird is that the president, when he was asked by a reporter, what do you think is the cause? Even though he had been briefed by his intelligence people that the cause was currently unknown, but leaning toward this storage of ammonium nitrate as the proximal reason for the extraordinary explosion the president stood there in front of the press and said, it looks like an attack. And of course, everybody's assuming that he meant an attack of terrorists in the Middle East. When I heard that, I sent a note to Robert and I said, hmm, I think he's referring to the unseen going on up above. Remember the breakaways, our whole model of COVID-19 and a lot of other weirdness currently going on on the planet is because the breakaways have finally made their move. And I believe in that model that this was one of those demonstrations like with the right technology, this kind of explosion could take place in any city on the planet And it may not need ammonium nitrate to trigger. That's the level of the technology we could be confronting. Well, lo and behold, of all the people who made comments right after this explosion, 
President Trump said it was likely an attack, not an accident. And one has to wonder what he knows that he's not revealing or he's revealing in a very Emily Dickinson fashion, as I've said a million times on this show. Anyway, the report on the ship and the explosives and the cargo manifests and what the Lebanese government all that did is in item number four. Item number five kind of grades away from that because this is a story of a woman who did everything possible, pregnant woman, when she realized that she had the possibility of catching this, and she got it anyway. And the three people that were the only people ever allowed to be in contact with her and her husband, they've all now been tested negative, but she tests positive, as does her husband. So the question then is, how did this woman living in verifiable isolation with no human contact who had, could have given her the virus, how did she come down with it? Is it possible that Chandra... Wickrama Singh's and my model is correct that this has been or is now still being seeded from orbit and she was unlucky enough to be outside when it was falling and she breathed it in from the atmosphere. Stay tuned. Speaking of tests, I love empirical tests. I mean, science is really science because you can do experiments, you can do tests. There has been this raging controversy going on now for months, ever since the pandemic was first announced back in, in March. And even before that, um, when the CDC was talking about, you know, Americans and what they could do or not do to protect themselves, there's been this controversy over to wear a mask or not wear a mask. And there's all kinds of people on both sides of this horribly political discussion now, all science has long since been left behind. We have the maskers and the non-maskers and never the twain shall meet. And I know some of these people. I, I trust these people. I believe in these people. I have been friends with these people for many, many, many years. And it distresses me no end that they're not taking a simple precaution because they believe there is a body of evidence out there that says masks are worthless. They're pointless. Well, I like data. As you know, if you listen to the show at all, I'm a data-driven guy. Recently, as of July 3rd, the governor of Kansas put in a, a, uh, a governor's order that all citizens of the state of Kansas, all 2.9 million of them, when they're out in public and around other people, they should wear masks. Promptly, 90 counties of the 105 counties uh, in Kansas put out counter orders. And for some reason in the law, their local orders, you know, supersede the governor's orders. So we've got an extraordinary test case. We've got 105 counties in Kansas. We've got 90 counties that have said to their citizens, oh, you don't need to wear masks. And the other remaining counties, you know, 105 minus 90, you do the math. They have put in their own mask mandates, and what's stunning, and for someone who really believes in science, empirical, experimental, on-the-ground data, if you look at item number six, this is the results of a seven-day rolling average going back to the beginning of the pandemic and including the July 3rd order by the governor. And you can see that in the counties where mask wearing is optional, the curve of COVID cases is proceeding apace. When you look at the counties where mask wearing is now mandatory in Kansas, again, middle of the country, Trump country, when you look at that comparison of data, the counties where masks are required, the number of COVID cases has dropped incredibly. It's the red line there and the non-mask counties of the blue line. This is from the Kansas, uh, state of Kansas Department of Public Health. It's official data. Um, it was discussed on television by the leading health expert for the state of Kansas. And as soon as he popped up the graph, I said, well, I mean, we've got roughly 3 million people we're playing with. It's a random field trial. 
It isn't some kind of, you know, limited test or limited, you know, uh, uh, experiment. It's literally an experiment covering the width of Kansas and of the people who are in counties where they don't mask, the COVID number is much higher than where masks are required. Now, a few weeks ago, I described on the show a very simple experiment, which you can perform to show the efficacy of wearing a mask. If two people, one who has COVID and the other who doesn't, get together, and the one who has COVID doesn't know he has COVID or she, and they're both wearing masks, it reduces the chance that the person without COVID will get it by a major factor. That's a theory. You can test it by using masks, various varieties, and trying to blow a candle out, which shows you how effective even bandanas are of shielding, you know, a naked candle from your, you know, trying to blow the damn thing out. This data, this graph is stunning because it encompasses literally millions of people who are in no way controlled. It's a totally randomized trial. And the empirical evidence says clearly, if you're out in public wearing a mask, really, really helps. I mean, this should be all that someone who's intelligent and who wants to stay alive needs to look at to know that every little bit helps in a mask now for the time being until we have other remedies at hand is the best procedure that in staying, you know, as far from people as you can and washing your hands and all that other stuff. Empirical data. I love empirical data. Speaking of which, tonight's program involves new empirical data which reinforces a conversation I had with my guest tonight, Dennis Stone, who happens to be the president of America's Stonehenge. He graduated from Daniel Webster College in 1977 with a degree in aviation management, was a full-time commercial pilot for over 35 years before he retired in 2016. And he he opened, uh, or, or rather he took over America's Stonehenge, which was opened to the public back in 1958, Um, when it was owned by his father, Robert Stone. Dennis has been involved with America's Stonehenge most of his life, has had a fascination with archaeology and archaeoastronomy, and since retiring, I I still can't think of him as retired, because what he's doing now is much more time-consuming and in many other ways consuming than what he used to be doing. He's found many serpentine walls and spirit windows discoveries. So without further ado, Dennis Stone, you're back on the other side of midnight. Oh, good evening. Thank you for having me on, Richard. Glad well, to be I, back. I have really been looking forward to this because we 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 kind of did a show several weeks ago with an old friend of mine, Chris Knowles, and we were discussing all of the weirdnesses, symbolic weirdnesses, up to and including UFO sightings that have happened in New Hampshire. And as part of the conversation, your name came up. And we talked about America's Stonehenge, and I proposed the idea that maybe some of these UFO sightings and encounters, the most famous uh, encounter of all time, Betty and Barney Hill, took place right there in the middle of New Hampshire back in 1965, I believe. And so I proposed the idea that maybe this concentration of, shall we say, UFO activity, sightings, I hate this term, abductions, et cetera, um, is, is taking place there because of its ancient history. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I think one of the biggest flaps in the country was uh, back in the early 80s, as you know, in the Hudson Valley. And um, I was flying uh, out of LaGuardia quite a bit at that time in Kennedy. And some of my colleagues actually got involved with that. And their names ended up in some of the newspapers and magazines uh, from that UFO event down there. And, um, yeah, Bonnie and Betty Hill. Betty became a friend of my mom's, you know, um, back in 1974. And they're they're, – their experience happened in 1961 coming down from Montreal and the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Oh, that's right. They went to the psychiatrist yeah. in 65. That's, that's right. Yeah. 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 It took a few years uh, Rich, uh, we're going through the break. Mm, not quite yet. Not according to mine. Well, maybe we are. Okay. Tell you what, Dennis, hold it there. You know, every time Dennis talks, I get totally captivated. So don't go away. My guest this morning is Dennis Stone. We're going to be talking about ancient archaeology on the North American continent and by uh, metonymy, the world. 
and how it might be affecting current UFO visitations from, from whom? Stay tuned. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. For this Saturday, August 8th of 2020, good grief, where has this year gone? Anyway, Dennis, you said that your your mother knew Betty? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, Betty came to our museum back in 1974 to not only see the museum and, you know, meet us, but also because we had a special guest here. It was uh, Hans Holzer. And um, so she came and met him and my mom and... Betty hit it off uh, very well, and until Betty's death, I think around 2003 or 2004, they remained friends. They used to get together at her house over in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and also at Betty's mom's house uh, in Kingston, New Hampshire. And uh, actually, the incident at Exeter took place in 1965, and that was closer to Betty's home uh, where she was living. But uh, that was a separate thing. The incident at Exeter became a big kind of a it was a hit in a book. Um, and people still talk about that particular event today. So, but Betty, yeah, she used to come up here all the time and she was very nice. And we, um, you know, got together quite a few times with her. Well, the obvious question before we get into (laughs) your work is what did she say? Right. I mean, she, you know, she seemed so honest, uh, sincere, uh, you know, this the, this experience really changed well, her tell you life. What, for people that don't know the story, because, you know, new yeah. generations don't read, um, <laughs> kind of give us a, a thumbnail sketch of why Betty and Barney Hill have become a cause celeb. Right. They were coming down uh, from Montreal back to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they're going through the White Mountains in New Hampshire up near what is called Franconia Notch. It's a beautiful area up there. Where the and Great was, Stone uh, Face used to be. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah, that came down. That fell down in, I think, 2003. We lost the face, you know, which is really sad. And they would have been going right by that area. And just north of that area, however, that is where they first spotted something in the sky. You know, it looked very unusual to them. And so it was her and her husband and I believe their dog. And I believe they had a Chevrolet. And they're driving southbound, going back home really late at night. I think it was, I'm going to say around 1 o'clock. Roughly, that may not be exactly the time, but I have her book here in our library. I probably should have it out looking at it. Um, and as they kept going south, they kept seeing this. And because Bonnie got very interested, Betty was very interested. And eventually, uh, somewhere near what they call um, Indian Head, it's actually a sh- like the old man of the mountain. It's a natural formation and a rock, and there's a motel there called that. Uh, they the side road, I guess. And I think Betty really didn't want to go down there because this thing kept getting closer and bigger. And eventually uh, they stopped the car and, 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 and Bonnie and could see this object in front of them. And as they were looking at it, uh, they could see what looked like 
some sort of humanoids in it, I guess. Um, and what happened next? Did, though, hang on, hang on. Did, didn't Barney sure. stop the car? Yeah. And, and he, he got did. out with binoculars. Binoculars. That's right. I'm sorry, I missed the binocular part. And, and he focused on the window. This thing had windows. Yeah. That's right. And then he, de- then he described what he saw up in the sky against back of those windows. Uh, that's correct. That is, yes. And he had the binoculars. He saw the, uh, the what, humanoids inside. And I think he was describing it to Betty, and he got very, very scared. And, um, and what I recall, I read the book about a year and a half ago, so some of the details, you know, um, and she signed the book and everything, which is cool. We have it in our library. But um, they ended up back in the car heading south back to uh, Portsmouth. But I believe when they got home, they realized it was kind of strange. They arrived home three hours later or something like three hours later than they should have. Yeah. And for the next several years, they had really bad nightmares, both of them. But it wasn't until around 19, uh, I say the mid-60s, I think, roughly, they uh, went to a doctor in um, Boston, I believe. Dr. Benjamin Simon. That's the gentleman, yes. And he ended up putting them under uh, hypnosis separately, and they repeated their story. And I guess this was several sessions, too, each. You know, it wasn't just one session. And they repeated the stories of what they encountered. But Betty's dress had some sort of chemical or some sort of markings on it. The Chevrolet had these shiny spots, and they were kind of unusual. You know, they couldn't explain it. On the was, uh, on the trunk, I believe. I think it was on the trunk. That's correct. Yeah. And Betty kept the dress. And I don't know what happened to the car, but the dog also, I think. The let, dog me, let me stop you there. Um, yeah. I got involved in 60. I was at the museum in Springfield at the time. Uh-huh. And I was, what, 18, 19, you know, not dry behind the ears. You can, <laughs> you know, at that age, you think you can do anything. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go to Portsmouth and meet Benny and Barney Hill. I'm going to solve this. <laughs> and I was able to convince my director to let me go. So we drove up to Portsmouth an entire day and evening with Betty and Barney in their home. Oh, wow. And I need to tell everybody who doesn't know the story, Betty and Barney were one of the first celebrated multiracial couples. She was white and he was black. And in those days, I mean, that was so shocking to an awful lot of people. Nowadays, you know, who, who cares? But then mm-hmm. it was a really big deal. And what was two, three things now stand out in my mind in that conversation. One is Betty, I got Betty to go through the star map mm-hmm. with me that she saw because they were abducted and taken in the craft and subjected to a medical exam and all the stuff that came out in Dr. Simon's, you know, hypnotic regressions, there were a couple of very interesting things. One was that she reported this three-dimensional map, and she asked the leader of the the ETs, the aliens, whatever, um, whether, uh, you know, what that map represented. And he said something like, and it was very provocative to me, he said, can you see yourself on that map? And that made me realize that maybe it wasn't a map of the sky as seen from Earth. Maybe it was a map from out there looking to Earth from where they came. So I then call up my friend, this was days later, uh, J. Allen Hynek, and I was able to get him to put them under hypnosis. So the whole story of her Betty's hypnosis and her tracing of the map, the reconstruction and all that, came from my 24 hours with Betty and Barney Hill as this 19-year-old kid from the Springfield Museum of Science. The other weird thing, Dennis, that really now strikes me very, very appropriately in terms of relevance to, A, my conversation with Chris Knowles a few days ago and my conversation with you tonight regarding America's Stonehenge is that Betty and Barney both reported that many of the crew among these group of ETs or quote aliens appeared to be dressed in Nazi uniforms. Huh. And that brings up the whole idea of the hmm. breakaway civilization that Richard Dolan and I are going to talk about in the next few weeks because we've got him on the show. We had to reschedule and all that We're working out details now, but he's the, he's the guy who came up with the idea 
that literally the Germans at the end of World War II took their technology and went out there somewhere and have been hobnobbing with other folks who are out there somewhere. And so this opens a huge can of worms, bringing us all back to the question, why New Hampshire? Why New England? Why are these repeated UFO encounters, occurrences, incidents, strange stories? Why are they clustered around New England and New Hampshire? And I come back to my central question, does it have something to do with the fact that the ground under your feet tonight is sacred ground for some reason having to do with our own ancient, ancient human ancestors and things they knew and built? It sounds very possible. There seems to be a correlation between these uh, ancient sites and um, sightings of UFOs. And even my dad over the years mentioned that going way back. He got involved with this back in 1955, so I heard this whole thing. Yeah, for, you know, for, for those new people that have joined us, give a reprise of the history of America Stonehenge, which used to be called Mystery Hill, and how your dad got control of it, and then how you got control of it. And then we'll segue into what you found recently, which is yeah. really, really cool. You know, one thing, too, Richard, I saw the other day on TV, and I don't know if I recall this, but Mount, up in Mount Washington in New Hampshire, not far from where Bay and Betty Hill saw their UFO around 1961, um, they, there's a picture, and it's a picture of kind of a cigar-shaped ship over Mount Washington, and it was on this show, it reported to be the very first UFO picture taken anywhere, and I don't know if that is truth, but it was on a TV show, and I said, well, that's interesting, I'll have to try to look into that and see if that, that is correct, you know, the very first UFO picture taken, it was back in the 1800s. Have you ever been up on the top of Mount Washington? A few times, yeah. Yeah. Did you it's wear cool. really, really, really warm clothes? Yes, yeah, because it's summer in the valley and it's winter up there. Absolutely. It's the highest mountain, I think, east of the Mississippi, I think. I think, yeah, it's in the northeast. And there's one down in, um, it's Mount Mitchell or another one down in North uh, down in North Carolina, I think that might be just a little bit taller, but um, I thought it was always east of the Mississippi too, until I have relatives down there that corrected me. And they lived in Virginia and they said, no, it's North Carolina, Mount Mitchell or one of those. But um, yeah, that's pretty cool. My son has actually rally raced up that mountain, did it about eight minutes. So you can drive up it, you can hike up it, you can take the cog railway up it. But that, that picture was really interesting. And I just saw it last week and I'm like, wow, I had, I don't think I've ever heard that before. So, hmm. um, but yeah, my dad got involved with this from a radio show back in 1955. My dad had been in the Coast Guard for a few years just prior to that. And he went to work at AT&T Bell Laboratories as an engineer. And uh, he always had an interest in the past. He was uh, very interested in the Vikings. You know, did they make it to America and where? Uh, Columbus's voyage, Native Americans, and other legends of people coming across. So he is what would have been called in a much earlier era an antiquarian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And today they're uh, more, you know, specialized as archaeologists, you know, and anthropologists. But yeah, he had kind of a general, really, you know, deep interest in the past. And um, so on a Friday night, in the summer of 1955, he was listening to the radio, and it's one of the largest uh, radio stations in New England, out of Boston. And good old WBZ. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> WBZ Radio AM, and they're still around. Uh, and they just had their, I think, their 80th anniversary. But uh, it was a show called Yankee Yarns, and the talk show host was Alton Hall Blackington. And that particular evening, while listening to the radio, they were talking about these strange stone ruins in North Salem, New Hampshire. My dad lived about eight miles up the road in the town of Derry, New Hampshire, the home of Alan Shepard, the first astronaut mm-hmm. and Bob Frost. <laughs> so, uh, we See, have, there's we have, another space connection. <laughs> isn't that weird? Yeah. And it was called Space Town back, you know, for many, many years. So we always had a deep interest in space, of course. I grew up with that. And uh, so my dad um, heard about that on the radio show that evening. And I think later on in that, that same year, they played it again. Much to my surprise this year, going through my dad's archives, I found a, uh, uh, a letterhead from Alton Howell Blackington to the owner of the place at the time. It wasn't my dad. And they wanted to come up in 1949, six years earlier than this, and visit the site. He had already done a radio show on, 
uh, on the site on WBZ and some of the syndicated stations in New England. And he wanted to come back and visit it and do another show. And this is 1949. I had no idea until I found that actual letterhead from Alton Hall Blackington and signed by him. I'm like, wow. And how did my dad get that? I don't know. Um, but my dad, I was at a barber shop a few days later. He, he was looking at a magazine, waiting to have his hair done. And magazine was New Hampshire Profiles. It was a pretty nice magazine. And as he opened it, he went right to the page. It had a whole full feature on the same site that he had never heard about, living only eight miles from here. And, he, you know, it's one of these coincidences. And when he asked the barber if he could keep the magazine uh, because of the article, he goes, well, how old is that? He goes, it's 1952. So it had been sitting there for three years. Wow. Nobody threw it away <laughs> for three years. And so my dad, I was given the magazine, and they were at my aunt and uncle's house. And my aunt, by the way, were there at their house. She used to do Alan Shepard's mom's hair for decades. Oh, friends. good grief. So in another how one many of degrees of Kevin Bacon can we reach tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Just, well, it's a small town, I guess, but everybody kind of knew each other, but it was kind of cool. And um, so when my dad passed the magazine around where they were playing cards and having beer and having a social, about 10 people recognized it until my aunt and uncle looked at it. And when they saw that, they said, oh, wow, we used to go down there in the 1930s and they would ride their bicycles down and they would picnic up on the hill because my dad's next uh, question was, can you find a place? And they go, well, it's been over 20 years and it's not open to the public. It's up on a hill in these woods. Maybe we can find it, you know, the next day, which is a Sunday. So the four of them came down and they drove all over the place. Eventually, they uh, spotted a side road and they stopped and they, they were lucky. That was the road to the to the site, about a quarter of a mile up the hill, they walked, and they trespassed the whole way. <laughs> and there's signs saying keep out and everything because they didn't want the site vandalized. And there's a big chain-link fence around the main site. The main site's about one acre, and it has most of the stone structures, but not all. Um, and it was put up in 1937 by Mr. Goodwin. And Mr. Goodwin of Hartford, Connecticut, was a true antiquarian, and he bought the property in 1937. And he was the first cousin of J.P. Morgan, so, uh, a little, mm. uh, you know, the Morgans and the Goodwins of Hartford. So he uh, loved uh, ancient sites, too. So he bought the site to investigate it, put up a chain link fence. And that's the thing that my dad had climbed underneath again. He wasn't supposed to. And the rest of them stayed outside the fence, waited maybe about a half an hour to an hour. <laughs> it was quite a while. And they were wondering where my dad is because it's all full of brush and debris. It was hard to see the site back in those days. And when my dad came out, you know, finally, they said, what do you think? And he says, oh, my God, this place is amazing. And he goes, you know, I'd love to do research, maybe maybe purchase it, maybe open it to the public, in which my mom responded something about him having rocks in his head, <laughs> which, which is true, you know. And, and so for the next couple of years, they worked on uh, opening it. They met the owner. And eventually they opened up in 1958. Well, wait, 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 wait. The owner sold it. Did he did he object? Did he ask for a huge price? Or did he just want well, to get rid um, of it? Well, the owner actually, yeah, he actually the owner um, was given the site in a will by by William Goodwin uh, when he passed away in 1950. Oh, my. And, but he was a professional photographer, which was good. So he photographed the site when Goodwin first came. And all throughout the years, we have such a valuable record of the site. Wow. Uh, glass slides, plastic slides, photographs. But yeah. What, he, what they uh, used to call lantern slides. Yeah, 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 from the thir 1930s and probably early 40s, I think. And we have hundreds and hundreds these of were, These were small glass plates that were bound with, with uh, tape at the edge, and they were yeah. basically a glass sandwich with the, yeah. with, the, with, the, with the positive photo inside, and you'd project them in what was, was called lantern slide projectors, and you could make yeah. big pictures, yeah. you know, long before Kodak. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. It's pretty cool, yeah. So we got some historic – that alone's kind of neat, you know. And um, But the first photographs we have, we actually, we have four of them going back to 1920, so 100 years ago this year. Mm. But those um, – but, but the ones from Goodwin started in 1936 when he first visited the site. He bought it the next year. But Malcolm um, was very interested in the site. He was, in fact, at one point talking to the governor of New Hampshire and some of the other people in the uh, state capitol about maybe – selling the site to the state and making it a state historic site, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, and it was about two years of that, 1951, 1952, into 19, I'm sorry, 1952 to 1954 when I was born. He was still trying to go at it. But he, um, he lived in Sutton, Massachusetts about maybe an hour and a half away. So he wasn't next to the place. So my dad met him, talked to him. Uh, my dad actually leased the site for the next seven years. So Malcolm wasn't 
selling it right away for sure. And um, but my dad opened up in 1958, and again that's the same year NASA was formed too, which is kind of cool. Um, yep, July and it was called, to October. Yeah, oh yeah, it, and so uh, it was called Mystery Hill Caves initially. In 1963, the word caves confused people. They thought it was a natural cabins or right, you know right. vaults in the rock or something like polar caves in New Hampshire. And so we dropped the word caves. It became Mystery Hill. But the first time it was called America Stonehenge was by the Saturday Evening Post in 1959. They did a full feature on us, oh. and um, it was kind of cool. We still have that magazine. And they, I was going to say, for folks that don't know, <laughs> the, the 1950s and 60s, you know, we, we had television, we had newspapers, and we had these wonderful, beautiful, glossy magazines called Slicks, Life Magazine, Collier's, Saturday Evening Post, and to get a get a big spread in Saturday Evening Post, I mean, you had arrived. <laughs> yeah. And they're kind of artistic, those, uh, you know, the photographs and everything was very, very nicely done. And uh, in Salem actually had, when that magazine came out, I think it was August of 1959, they had Mystery Hill Caves Week. And we had a racetrack called Rockingham Racetrack. It's very famous and it's closed now after almost 100 years, which is sad. But it was thoroughbred racing and they had a whole thing on a Mystery Hill that week. They had banners across the highways and they, they had a special uh, book they made up that they gave to the owner of the horse, the, um, the jockey, I think, and also to our manager. And I, for some reason, the family doesn't have this. It was a nice thick, uh, nice little book uh, about our place, you know, and I haven't been able to locate it. So that was 1959. And, so hang on, um, hang on. Do you have the sure. Saturday Evening Post magazine? Oh, we do have that, though, yes. we Have, have you columns. have you photographed the article? Yes, we do. I, yeah, I don't have it on my phone right now. I was going to say, after the show, <laughs> you should send a, a, either the oh. cover or the copy to Kinthea, because I love historical connections, and that's yeah. – I mean, again – being photographed and with a spread in Saturday Evening Post back then, that was a major big deal. Yeah, yeah. We were pretty excited about it, uh, very honored, and it, it was nationwide kind of, you know, it was pretty cool, yep. like you yep. said. Yeah, and now with all the – it's so different today, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, so in 1963, we just dropped the word case, became Mystery Hill, and the astronomical work actually began in 1965 after uh, – Gerald Hopkins uh, from the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Boston. He uh, wrote Stonehenge Decoded. He's from England originally, but he uh, wrote Stonehenge Decoded, which became a very popular book. And CBS, uh, which you know CBS, I know you were with them in I do kind of remember <laughs> Charles Collingwood was the anchor who took a crew and basically following uh, the book, uh, yep. did a beautiful hour-long special on CBS in prime time on the Astronomical Observatory decoding of Stonehenge in England. Absolutely. You've got a great memory, uh, fantastic memory. And that we uh, actually have seen that video again, and um, it was in 65. And that's what really got my dad and some of the investigators interested in. See, Roddenberry said to me, Dick, if it's real, it'll be on television. For your (laughs) father, it had to be on television for him to get how maybe special it was. You're right. That's what really triggered it. You know, uh, they're watching TV and it's like, whoa, we have these standing stones out in the woods and nobody knows what their purpose is. And they, these are big quarried stones that were actually shaped, you know, uh, dressed using hammer stones. And they look like big arrowheads and they're out in the middle of the woods. And what purpose did they serve? But you're right. It was a TV show that triggered it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that really, isn't that funny just watching TV at home. And then they got the book, of course, they, they probably uh, went down to the bookstore and got the book on Gerald Hawkins. And uh, we used to sell it here, you know, in the uh, late sixties and early seventies. And uh, so the astronomical work actually began in 65. The clearing of the trees began in 1967. And we're actually still working on that project today. Over uh, uh, 55 years later, we're still working on that. So that the sight lines are are clear as they used to be. Yeah, the hilltopper is probably pretty bare. We have done uh, many, many shovel test pits of what they call STPs. And we had the president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society with us since 1989, and her husband was a doctor of geology at Tufts University for 30 years. So she had a really good partner there, you know, for the geology of the wherever she did her archaeology. And at this hill, uh, what she says is the hilltop probably was about 75% bare bedrock, 25% 
covered with soils and uh, some vegetation 4,000 years ago was her estimate. And so it was nice to have a geologist in the family to help her with that. But she spent years looking at that. So it was a pretty open hill back then when the site was uh, built. They didn't have a tree problem like we do today. Mm. And um, we, we have approximately 51 different alignments with the sun, moon, and stars. Wow. Okay, so 67, your dad sees the CBS special, gets really interested in what he's got. He must have intuited it was something important. Otherwise, why would he have rented it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he had a gut. He always said, "I got a gut feeling about this," and it usually turns out right. You know what he thought uh, about uh, the site, the astronomical alignments, the age of the site not being a colonial site or a post-colonial site, but something that was quite old and probably a ceremonial place, not a place where people live. Um, and he started a group in 1964 called the. It's a nonprofit group. It's still in existence called the New England Antiquities Research Association. Um, and they're still very active. And back in the 30s and right into the 1950s, they knew of about maybe about 15 sites in the Northeast that may be related to this site, possibly because of the style of construction. Today, there's about 850 different sites from Quebec, Canada, all the way down to uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So it's not just a New Hampshire or New England thing. It's much more spread out than that. It's like there's a whole uh, culture of stone builders that's not recognized or known in the past. And it, our history books would definitely have to change. You know, uh, these sites should not be here in the Northeast. And Native Americans have been here for over 10,000 years. Were they involved with this heavily or partially? We just don't know. There seems to be an old world, um, some artifacts uh, that may indicate these people may have come across the Atlantic that built our site, perhaps some of the other ones. But the Native Americans were definitely here. And we have found a, a wigwam site in our parking lot. We used particle acceleration from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute back in 1993. And that dated to about 2,000 years old. And this wigwam was about 30 feet in diameter. And they found the grease from the cooking still in the soil. And um, we also found a 7,400-year-old uh, fire pit up on top of the hill near the site. Wait a minute, uh, 7,400 years old? Yeah, yeah, and that was uh, 1995, and I think Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute did that dating too, and that's a middle archaic time period. It's about uh, about 3,500 years older than perhaps when the site was built, so somebody might have been on the hill that early, camping perhaps, um, and they left a fire pit, what it appears to be, and so, yeah, human activity can go back on top of this hill to that time period. Hmm. Okay, so let's pick up the thread. Your, your dad sees the TV show, starts doing measurements. What was the first really wondrous thing he found? Yeah, the winter solstice sunset, I think. And they cleared that one out first. It took, uh, oh, it took 65, 66, 67, I guess. They started clearing out the trees. They had to clear out about 800 feet of trees, probably over 100 feet wide. And Unfortunately, we're in New England, so we had the New England weather factor. And so in 67, the weather wasn't good. 68, the same thing in 69. In 1970, 50 years ago, this coming uh, winter solstice will be our 50th anniversary. I was there with my uh, friend, my age, my dad, and our manager, who became a nuclear physicist. And he was at the Fukushima. That's how he retired. He was over in Japan, actually. And he retired after that. He moved back to Maine. And uh, he's still around here. But the four of us went up there. We were watching this, the uh, sunset in the evening of uh, probably December 20th or 21st, 1970. And the skies were perfect with just a few clouds. And we stood there watching. And as the sun descended, it went right over the top of this arrowhead-shaped monolith. Not only was it cold, but we got goosebumps just thinking about we may be the first people to have seen this perhaps for thousands of years. My and then we knew we were right. You know, We knew that this was an astronomical marker. Um, and that's when the astronomy and the tree flaring really took off in 1970. We are top of the hour, Rich. <laughs> okay. Hey, uh, you, we, we've gone long again. Um, my guest this morning is Dennis Stone. See, I've got to stop listening to my guests. That's what's so distressing sometimes. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. 
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.